The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mr. Nathan Lewin now presents his lecture, Battling for Menorahs in American Courts. For the past five decades, Nat Lewin has dedicated much of his legal career to defending the rights of Jews and Jewish values in law courts throughout the country, including numerous times in the Supreme Court. Nat Lewin was born in 1936 in Lodz, Poland. His grandfather was a leading rabbi and member of the Polish government. In 1939, Lewin's family fled Poland just ahead of the Nazis and arrived in the United States via Japan in 1941. After graduating magna cum laude from Harvard Law School in 1960, Lewin was unable to find employment with a private law firm as they openly discriminated against his Sabbath observance. Lewin's dedication prevailed, and in 1972, he drafted an amendment to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that now protects the rights of Sabbath observers in private employment. Lewin has successfully championed the rights of Jews to display Hanukkah menorahs on public property. He brought lawsuits on behalf of Jewish prisoners who were denied kosher food, Jewish military chaplains who were prohibited from having a beard, and an Air Force psychologist who was barred from wearing a kippah while on duty. Lewin has also waged a successful decade-long battle to win compensation for victims of terrorism from U.S.-based charities who provide financial support to terrorist groups. Whether arguing cases regarding the workforce, the military, or private issues, Nat Lewin has always done so with exceptional brilliance and immense Jewish pride. He has also handled scores of religious discrimination cases pro bono as a service to the Jewish community. Judge Pierre Laval of the United States Court of Appeals noted, There is no harder job that will ever befall a judge than deciding a case against Nat Lewin. You need to deal with a plethora, a multitude of the most ingenious arguments and the most beautifully crafted arguments. It is the hardest job I have ever had as a federal judge. He is, I have told many people, the best lawyer who has ever appeared before me. Today we are honored to recognize at the National Jewish Retreat the legendary defender and advocate for Judaism and Jewish peoplehood, the Honorable Mr. Nat Lewin. All right, the subject now is Hanukkah menorahs. So... We have people, I suppose, that are from all over the country. How many of you have seen a Chabad Hanukkah menorah? Oh, fantastic. You have to realize, I mean, in Chabad, I'm sort of glorified in a certain sense because I handled the case of the Sfarim, the famous case of the library of the previous Rebbe, that established that it belonged to Chabad. So I'm very proud of that. 
And that's what I'm recognized for, generally. Chabad members who see me, they say, oh, you made the Rebbe happy. You won the case of the Sparring. But if you ask me, truthfully, what did matter, even though that was a major concern to the Rebbe, and he went out every day to the OHEL and prayed for a proper result in that case, which, thank God, we got. But in terms of the contribution to Jews, not only in the United States, but all over the world, when I think of what the Rebbe did, I really believe that the Hanukkah menorah is really a more lasting and important contribution. The Rebbe's view that Hanukkah menorahs should be put up all over in public places for Hanukkah has made Jews and young Jews proud because they come, I hear accounts of people who come with their kids and they see the big beautiful Hanukkah menorah and they say, even though we're a minority, we're recognized in this country because not only is there a Christmas tree, not only are there wreaths, but there's this big beautiful Hanukkah menorah. So I think it is a major, major contribution that Chabad and the Rebbe made in terms of Jewry in the United States and all over the world. Wherever you go, we've been traveled to South America, Buenos Aires, Rio, to Singapore. We've seen Hanukkah menorahs, huge Hanukkah menorahs in public places all over. But the mystery is, to anybody who, who does not know American law, or American constitutional law, why is it an issue? A very good friend that I had until he was nifter, until he passed away, was a justice of the Supreme Court of Israel, Menachem Elon. And I told Menachem Elon about the litigation we had, the different litigations, which I will discuss for you today, that we had in the United States over the big Hanukkah menorahs. And Elon was puzzled. Here's a brilliant mind, legal mind in Israel, and he said to me, why is it an issue? What's the problem? Why can't you have a big Hanukkah menorah? Why should it be a legal question? Because people don't understand that in the United States, there's a provision, it starts the first words of the Bill of Rights, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the establishment clause is viewed by various civil libertarians and various groups that are opposed really to public recognition of religion as a basis for opposing and challenging all kinds of religious symbols in public places. So in the United States, very uniquely, there's a problem. Because if you put up a big Hanukkah menorah on a public place or in front of a city hall, is it a violation of the Establishment Clause? And that's the issue. 
And that's what has led to the subject that I'm going to discuss with you today, which is the litigation over Hanukkah menorahs in the United States, battling for menorahs in American courts. And let me tell you that although I will describe for you today a history of the litigation that we have had, by and large successful, over menorahs, it continues to be an issue to this day. People don't believe it. But every year, and I'll get to that, every year our little law firm gets in November requests from Chabad Shlukim, from rabbis in all strange places in the United States. Oh, I'm, I'm being prevented from putting up Hanukkah menorah. Can you help me? How did this question begin? Well, again, as I say, those who are opposed to Hanukkah menorahs, those who are strong anti-establishment, decided that having a Hanukkah menorah in a public place is a governmental recognition or endorsement or support of religion. And therefore, from the time that Chabad began putting up these big Hanukkah menorahs and seeking to have them in public places, the ACLU, local reform rabbis, various groups decided they were going to challenge it in court. And the litigation that began over that and it took different forms, which I'll describe to you, ended up ultimately in the Supreme Court of the United States. How did that happen? Well, the story begins really in terms of this litigation with the city of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, under a Catholic mayor named Caligari, had agreed to in, use a Chabad, big Chabad menorah, as part of the city's display for the holiday, for the season when Hanukkah, Christmas come together. And they, under Mayor Caligari, they had a display of a 45-foot-high Christmas tree in front of City Hall. Chabad of Pittsburgh had donated an 18-foot-high menorah. Now, there's a limit as to how high the menorah can be halakhically. And this was a not the very top, but nonetheless a large menorah. And Mayor Caligari agreed that the menorah would be up there next to the Christmas tree in front of City Hall. The uh, sign that was put up said next to it, during this holiday season, the city of Pittsburgh salutes liberty. Let these festive lights remind us that we are the keepers of the flame of liberty and our legacy of freedom. Big sign next to this 45-foot-high Christmas tree, 18-foot-high Menorah. The ACLU in Pittsburgh 
decided they were going to challenge that as being unconstitutional. Coincidentally, down the street in the Allegheny County Courthouse, Pittsburgh is in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, in the Allegheny County Courthouse, church groups had donated a creche, a nativity scene, for that time of the year. And if you went up the staircase, as you came into the building, there was this nativity scene on the staircase. So the ACLU decided it was going to sue both against the menorah and against the nativity scene. And they brought a lawsuit in federal court claiming that this violated that provision of the First Amendment. It was an Establishment Clause violation. The district judge in that case, Judge Baron McCune, not Jewish, said that's nonsense. Neither the menorah nor the nativity scene violate the Constitution. It's simply a recognition of the season, constitutional, permissible. Now, there was a history in terms of Supreme Court litigation. Displays, Christmas displays, had been challenged before, and the court was split over the question of whether a creche could be constitutional if supported by the government. So Judge McCune issues this decision. The ACLU says we're taking it up to the Court of Appeals. Legal issue. They go to the Court of Appeals. Three judges on the Court of Appeals, one of whom, our muzzle, Jewish, Judge Greenberg. And I can tell you that in the history of litigation over menorahs, we have had no consistent enemy or opponent of menorahs worse than Jewish judges. It's the Jewish judges who say it violates the Constitution. Rare exceptions, but mostly it's unfortunate if you get a menorah case before a Jewish judge. Case goes up to the Court of Appeals. Court of Appeals decides with an opinion written by Judge Greenberg. The menorah is unconstitutional. The creche is unconstitutional. The whole thing has to be taken down. Remove the menorah, remove creche. At that point, when the case is going up to the Court of Appeals, is when yours truly first becomes involved. A lawyer in Pittsburgh by the name of Charles Saul, who was supporter of Chabad, called me and said, look, will you handle this case in the Court of Appeals? And I said, yes. And we argued the case in the Court of Appeals, and we lost it two to one. So what's the next step if you lose in the Court of Appeals? You petition to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court had indicated an interest in this whole issue of public displays, crash, other, other kinds of Christian uh, displays, and the menorah. So we're going to file a petition in the Supreme Court. 
my initial first contribution that I'm very proud of is that when I saw that and I saw what the two looked like, 45-foot-high Christmas tree, 18-foot-high menorah, I said, hey, that picture ought to go right there and into the brief in the Supreme Court. Lawyers who file petitions in the Supreme Court frequently or sometimes put something in the back of the brief, you know, something that's relevant. I thought this is the case. 45-foot-high Christmas tree, 18-foot-high menorah. How can you say this endorses Judaism if it's a huge Christmas tree and a relatively small menorah? So I put that right into the petition for certiorari on page three, right at the very beginning. Look, here is what we have. This is not a display that's endorsing a religion. This is a display that is endorsing openness to all religions. And we said that to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Now, when the Supreme Court hears a case, there's a long period of time between the time they issue the order saying they're going to hear the case and the time that they actually do. And of course, what happened that year was they agreed to hear the case, but it was not going to be heard till after Hanukkah. So what do you do? Do you, do you, the Court of Appeals has said it's unconstitutional. So we applied to the Supreme Court for a stay of the order of the Court of Appeals. If you look at the internal documents in the Supreme Court, which, by the way, interestingly, you can get now from the Library of Congress because Justice Harry Blackman, when he passed away, left his internal papers to the Library of Congress. So if you go back to the records of that case, you can see what the internal memos in the court were. And there were a couple of justices who said that what you should do, thank you, that, who said that what you should do is um, grant the stay and put up the, the menorah for that year. And the memos in the Blackman papers are, the law clerk says, it's better to grant the stay because it communicates the value of religious toleration and you want to avoid the appearance of discrimination against Jews. Now, one question you may have at this point is, what about the Christmas tree? Is a Christmas tree a religious symbol? And the answer to that is that the view of 99% of judges in the United States is that a Christmas tree is not a religious symbol. A Christmas tree is a universal symbol of the season and not a religious symbol. There's one judge, an important judge, 
who held and took the view that if a Christmas tree is in a public place, you have a right to have a menorah in that public place. That judge is one who, if he were not suffering from terminal cancer, would have been appointed to the Supreme Court by President Bill Clinton. His name was Richard Arnold. He was a classmate of mine in the Harvard Law School class of 1960. Absolutely brilliant man who taught himself Hebrew, by the way. The last correspondence I had with Judge Arnold was after I knew that he had learned Hebrew and was able to read Hebrew. And I wrote to him. I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm reading the writings of the Maharal in Hebrew. The writings of the Maharal by a non-Jewish judge. He was the chief judge of the Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. And he wrote an opinion in which he said, if a Christmas tree is up, Jews are entitled to have a Hanukkah menorah. But no other judge ever agreed with him. So the issue in the Supreme Court on the stay was whether we were going to be able to put up the menorah for that year before the case was going to be argued. The court rejected the request for a stay. So no menorah went up in Pittsburgh that year. And the case was set to be argued before the full court. And I had the privilege of representing Chabad. Now, there were two displays, as I say. One, the menorah, and the other one in the Allegheny County Courthouse. The parties opposing me was the ACLU, who was represented by a Jewish lawyer by the name of Rosalind Littman, very fine woman, except she took the wrong position in that case. But the others were the city of Pittsburgh and the county of Allegheny. The Supreme Court granted review of the case, but it is an established rule in the Supreme Court that there may not be more than two lawyers arguing on one side of a case. So Ms. Littman was going to argue for the ACLU, which was the lead plaintiff. Who was going to argue for Pittsburgh and Allegheny County? They couldn't agree, but they knew that one of them was going to argue in addition to Ms. Littman. And then there was Chabad. Chabad was a party in the case. I filed the brief. So the two lawyers wrote me a letter. They said, you know, we'll decide which one of us will argue in addition to Ms. Littman. Which one of us will argue, I'm sorry, for the menorah and the crash. And the two of us will argue, one for the menorah and the other one for the crash. City of Pittsburgh for the menorah and um, the Allegheny County for the crash. But of course, you're just chopped liver. You know, Chabad, you, it's your menorah, but we're government. We're going to argue. I said, oh, no, no, no. I said, you may think that only you can argue, but we have a different position. Because our position is not only may you 
put up a menorah, but you must put up a menorah because the space in front of Pittsburgh City Hall is what the lawyers call a public forum. And if it's going to be open for some things, we're entitled to put up the menorah. They said, "Uh uh-oh, you're going to make that argument. If you make that argument, we're never going to allow a menorah in front of Pittsburgh City Hall. I said, I'm entitled to make that argument, and I'm entitled to make an oral presentation in the Supreme Court. They said, oh, no, we're the government. You can't do that. So I applied to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not like to resolve these things. They want the lawyers to decide, but we couldn't reach an agreement. So I applied to the Supreme Court for permission to argue. And believe it or not, the Supreme Court issued an order in which they said, yes, Mr. Lewin gets 10 minutes to argue, but only two lawyers can argue. That left them with a difficult choice. Is the lawyer for the city going to argue or the lawyer for Allegheny County? They couldn't decide. So they went out and they hired an outside lawyer to argue on behalf of the city and the county. Very fine lawyer, Peter Buscemi, who used to be in the office of the Solicitor General. So we got to argue the case. Arguing a case in the Supreme Court, I guess I'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow because I'm on the program for that subject. But arguing a case in the Supreme Court is a experience like none other because unlike so much of what you see on television when there are congressional hearings or other things, there is no advance notice of what the court is going to ask, what it's going to be interested in, and you have to be totally prepared for absolutely the wildest questions. And uh, in fact, uh, when I got up to argue, um, and it was, you know, sort of open, open territory. Mr. Buscemi argued first, and his argument was that the um, nativity scene and to the extent that he talked about the menorah were not an endorsement of religion. I made clear in my argument that this was a situation in which a clear religious symbol, and it's important to keep this in mind because I have to tell you that after we won this case for Chabad, the Jewish organizations that were on the other side of the case, because the ACLU was by and large in these cases joined by the American Jewish Congress, by various Jewish groups that did not want to see any religious symbolism on public property. And they said, after we won this case, that the reason Chabad won this case was because they told the court that the menorah was not a religious symbol. It was a sign of the state of Israel. We never said that. We never said that. We made very clear to the court, and I said it over and over again in the briefs, 
and in the oral argument that the menorah was a religious symbol and we had a right to put up that religious symbol because, and so far as that case was concerned, because it was next to this huge Christmas tree, it was certainly not an endorsement of Judaism. Mr. Bushemi, who was a friend before and remains a friend, told me that we won the case when I said to the court that there could be no realistic appraisal on the part of anybody who saw that menorah standing next to the Christmas tree, that Pittsburgh, which is not more than 10% Jewish population, is encouraging its citizens to become Jewish and is endorsing the Jewish faith. The menorah, although it's a religious symbol, is a religious symbol that is revered by Jews, basically, small percentage, but it was a recognition of the fact that Jews celebrate Hanukkah at the same time as non-Jews, as Christians, represent, uh, celebrate their holiday. Um, specifically, end of my argument. I said, the menorah conveys a religious message. There's evidence in the record that the menorah has significance other than religious as well, but it is a religious symbol. That case was one of two cases that created enormous difficulty for the court in that term. This was in 1989. If you follow the Supreme Court, you know, and that was true this year, too, that before the end of June, the court decides all its cases and goes off for the summer. Some of the justices go to Europe, they lecture, they travel, others just relax. But by the end of June, they're finished. In 1989, there were two cases which they couldn't decide before the end of June. And the case, the court's term went over into July. <clears throat> July 3rd of 1989 was the last date for the court. They announced they were gonna issue two remaining decisions on that day. I came to court. You know, the amazing thing is you argue cases in the Supreme Court, you don't know when they're gonna decide them. They don't give you any advance notice. There used to be a time before websites and computers and the ability to see opinions of the Supreme Court almost instantaneously when they had decided that the court would issue its written opinion and the lawyer who argued the case would not even read the, have a chance to read the opinion before the reporters called him up. There were many times, I have to tell you, when I would be sitting in my office and I got a call from a reporter, Mr. Lewin, what do you say about the decision in which the Supreme Court held against you today? I don't even know. I haven't read the decision. And you had to go and run down to the court and get a copy of the opinion to read it and be able to make some comment. Rarely was I in court 
to hear a decision in a case that I had argued. But on July 3rd, 1989, I knew the Menorah case was going to be decided on that day. So I went down to court and I sat in the lawyer's section waiting to hear what the court was going to decide with regard to the constitutionality of the menorah. I heard, sitting there, Justice Blackman announce that, amazingly, five justices of the Supreme Court were holding that the crash was unconstitutional. Six justices of the Supreme Court were holding that the menorah is constitutional. In other words, we won the menorah at the same time as the crash proponents lost the crash case. Uh, accelerating. I mean, you're sitting there. You've won this case. It's one of two cases that are being decided the last day of the term. All the cameras are out on the front of the Supreme Court on that plaza that you see waiting to speak to the lawyers in the case. And when I heard it being announced, I was delighted with the result. The menorah's constitutional. I had really no strong feeling about the crash. Too bad that the crash lost. But I had to start thinking, what was I going to tell those television cameras out on the plaza? So the court issued a decision in that case and in the other case. And we're walking out of court. On the row in front of me, in the lawyer's section, was the man who was the head, the president of the Washington chapter of the ACLU. He has just lost with regard to the menorah, although he won with regard to the crash. And as we're walking out, he says, Nat, congratulations. You just turned this into a Jewish nation. I thought that was a little bit of an overstatement. I was happy to receive his congratulations. I walked out of the court, went down those big steps, still trying to think of something clever to say to the cameras. They were all lined up. I walked through them. I thought they would ask me, how do you feel about wanting it for the menorah? Nobody stopped me. Nobody. They all went for the lawyers in the other case because the other case was about abortion rights. When it comes to comparing the newsworthiness of religion as against the newsworthiness of rights of abortion, there was no question what the papers were interested in. So I just went right through, hailed the cab, went to my office. But that was the decision in the Menorah case, July 3, 1989. You would think Pittsburgh now has a guaranteed menorah in front of its city hall. <clears throat> but one thing that I could not control in any way, and that was that the mayor of Pittsburgh, the Catholic mayor of Pittsburgh, who supported the menorah, Mayor Caligari, died. Had a disease, I forget what it was exactly, but he died. 
Who was he succeeded by? Believe it or not, he was succeeded by the chairperson of Pittsburgh City Council, a woman named Sophie Masloff. Sophie Masloff, nice Jewish lady, was a charter member of the American Jewish Congress. She was opposed to having menorahs in front of City Hall, no matter what the Supreme Court said. So when Sophie became mayor, she announced no more holiday decorations in front of City Hall. We're cutting that out. Now that I'm the mayor, I think it's unconstitutional, no matter what the Supreme Court says. <laughs> the newspapers came down on her like a ton of bricks. Mayor Masloff, you mean no Christmas tree? Mayor Masloff first says, no Christmas tree. Oh, my God. The Pittsburgh papers and all the media said, that's absurd. So then Mayor Masloff says, okay, we'll have a Christmas tree, but we will not have a menorah. No circumstances will we have a menorah. Well, what happens a year after, or that year that we won the case in the Supreme Court, 1989? Comes Hanukkah time, we, Chabad offers its menorah to Mayor Masloff. She says, absolutely not. So that tests the proposition that I was disagreeing with the lawyers for the city and the county. Do you have a right to put up a menorah, even if the city doesn't want to allow it? And I said, yes, we have a right, and we're going to sue to go and enforce that right. And we brought a lawsuit in 1989, after we won in Pittsburgh, we brought a lawsuit against Pittsburgh to force Mayor Masloff to put up a menorah. We said we had a constitutional right. Well, the week that year, Hanukkah began Friday evening, it was the first night of Hanukkah. On Monday, I was in federal district court before the same federal district judge saying I have a right to put up the menorah. We had a full day of hearings on that. And at the end of the full day of hearings, the judge says, this is a difficult issue. I'm going to think about it overnight. Come back tomorrow morning and I'll let you know what I think. We come back Tuesday morning again. Keep in mind, Friday evening at sundown is the first Hanukkah light. We come back Tuesday morning, and the judge says, I agree with Chabad. They have a right to put up a menorah. It should be put up the same way as last year. Same kind of sign, same place, put it up. That's his order. I am delighted. Unfortunately, I have a court appearance in Los Angeles that week. So Tuesday, after I hear the judge's decision, get on a plane, fly to L.A. Arrive in L.A., I'm told Mayor Masloff is not taking this lying down. She is going to appeal the judge's order to the Court of Appeals. I say, wow, come on. She's not going to get anywhere with that. Well, I'm told in a couple of hours 
She has gone to a judge of the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, who in fact ruled in was the dissenting vote the first time the case came up. But he lives in Pittsburgh, and she's going to apply for an order from him prohibiting the menorah from going up. Lo and behold, I'm told a couple of hours later, she's gotten the order from the judge. And you cannot put up the menorah. I'm out in Los Angeles. I have, back in my law office, I have a fine young lawyer, not Jewish, Catholic fellow, who's very interested in these issues. And we talk on the phone, and we agree that we're going to ask the full Court of Appeals in Philadelphia to review this order, that the menorah should be able to go up Friday. We file an application with the Court of Appeals Wednesday. Comes Wednesday, comes Thursday. I've said in the application, Hanukkah begins Friday evening. No word from the Court of Appeals. I'm finished with my business in Los Angeles. I'm going to get on a plane. Uh, I forget what they call it, but the, but what? The red eye. The red eye flight from Los Angeles that leaves at 11 o'clock at night, lands in Washington at 5 in the morning on Friday. I get on that flight. Haven't heard anything from the Court of Appeals. We call. Court of Appeals does nothing. So what do you do on a red eye? You can't sleep very well. So I write out. In those days, you handwrite. I handwrote an application to the justice of the Supreme Court who is in charge of Pennsylvania, Justice William Brennan. The problem is, of course, that Justice Brennan, in the original Menorah case that was decided July 3rd of that year, ruled his view was a dissenting view. He felt that the Menorah did violate the Establishment Clause. But now, instead of this being an issue of the establishment of religion, the issue now is free speech. Do we have a right to have religious speech in front of Pittsburgh City Hall? And I draft that application for Justice Brennan. And in those days, there was one telephone on the plane. You asked the stewardess, could I make a call? Could you please get me the phone? I asked the stewardess to please give me the phone. And I called up a sec my secretary, marvelous woman, and told her, good news. I'm landing at 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm writing an application to Justice Brennan in the Supreme Court. We have to have it at the Supreme Court at 9 o'clock in the morning. Will you please come into the office and type it up so we can file it? She was terrific. She came into the office. I met her. I gave her my manuscript. She typed it up. Nine o'clock in the morning, it was delivered to Justice Brennan at the Supreme Court. Now think of it for a moment. That night is the first night of Hanukkah. And I said in the application, <clears throat> we have gotten no word from the Court of Appeals. We're therefore asking Justice Brennan to issue an order vacating the stay that prevents us from putting up the menorah.
I get a call a couple of hours later. Mayor Masloff has her people send in a short opposition to what we had submitted. And the clerk of the Supreme Court tells me I gave the papers to Justice Brennan. Justice Brennan sees that you have made an application to the Court of Appeals. He doesn't want to rule before the Court of Appeals does. I tell the clerk, look, we've had this a couple of days and the Court of Appeals has done nothing. He says, well, Justice Brennan says he wants the Court of Appeals to, to rule on it. I say, look, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll withdraw the application to the Court of Appeals. And we fax, in those days you faxed, we fax an application to the Court of Appeals saying, we withdraw our request that the Court of Appeals vacate the stay. I report this to the clerk. The clerk speaks to Justice Brennan, apparently, comes back with a message. Justice Brennan does not like that. He wants the Court of Appeals to issue a ruling. Send another letter, fax another letter to the Court of Appeals. We're reinstating it because we're waiting if the court acts, we may go to Justice Brennan. At that point, it's two in the afternoon, three in the afternoon. I have to go home. It's going to be Shabbos soon. My Catholic young associate is left in the office. I say to him, you know, tell me what happens. Well, the Court of Appeals, Third Circuit, issues an order when they hear that saying, Okay, we deny the application, and therefore you can't put up the menorah. I'm home. I get a phone call at home. Again, before emails, before any of this instant communication, a phone call saying the Court of Appeals has denied. I say, call up the clerk and have him communicate that to Justice Brennan. Let me tell you, at 5 or 5.30 on the afternoon, when Hanukkah was going that night, Justice Brennan issued an order which said that the menorah goes up. And, ah, we won. The menorah's going to go up. It can't go up on Friday. It's too late. It's going to be put up on Sunday. Okay, I tell the people in Pittsburgh, be ready. We're going to put up the menorah on Sunday. They put up the menorah on Sunday. But Mayor Maslow doesn't give up. She goes and asks the full nine justices of the Supreme Court to overrule what Justice Brennan did. And there's an application by the city of Pittsburgh to overrule Justice Brennan. And the official reports in the U.S. reports in a case called Chabad versus City of Pittsburgh is an order by Six of the justices of the Supreme Court, with three dissents, approving of Justice Brennan's order. So on that basis, the menorah was up in Pittsburgh and has been up ever since, notwithstanding Mayor Maslow. There's a lot more to talk about. Let's see, till when do I have? 12.15. Oh, my God. The litigation, I mean, there, after that case, we litigated in Grand Rapids. I argued before 15 judges. 
of the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in Grand Rapids that the menorah by itself, without a Hanukkah, without a Christmas tree next to it, is constitutional. The Supreme, the Court of Appeals decided by a nine to six vote, agreed with us. It's the largest court I have ever argued before. Fifteen judges sitting in a circle in Cincinnati to hear the argument of the Grand Rapids case. After that, a couple of years after that, in Atlanta, Georgia, the question was, can you put up a menorah in the state capitol, in the rotunda of the state capitol, in front in the grounds of the state capitol, they had put up big menorahs. And the ACLU and those who were opposed to menorahs discovered regulations that said you can't do that. We said, okay, we won't put it up on the grounds. We'll put it up in the rotunda of the state capitol. They said, you're crazy. If you can't do it on the grounds, you certainly can't do it in the rotunda. We said, there's no regulation. Well, we brought a lawsuit. We lost not only the district judge, but we lost on appeal, and then we asked the full Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit to review that decision. And the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, 11 judges sitting on bank, 11 judges sitting in bank, ruled 11 to nothing that Chabad had a right to put up with a menorah. One of the, the original judges changed their minds on the in-bank, and they voted with the 11 judges for the right to put up the menorah um, in the rotunda of the state capitol. When we argued the case in Grand Rapids, while we were waiting, there was another case to be argued, I wrote a limerick, and I decided that the limerick really summarized what our opponents were saying, how ridiculous it was. And I thought that if, the, if it was appropriate, maybe I might recite that limerick to the court. So in the Grand Rapids case, when I had those 15 judges, and the chief judge was very complimentary, he gave me a lot of extra time to argue the case, and he said at the very end, he said, Mr. Lewin, that's a terrific argument you've made, but you're going to have to wrap it up. I said, okay, let me read to you a limerick that I just wrote that summarizes what my opponent said. And I was hoping that among those judges, some of whom were, I thought, clearly supportive of the Nora, somebody would quote that limerick in an opinion. There are not many lawyers whose poetry appears in court reports. So I waited. We won the case nine to six. The opinion was written by a judge who I thought was favorable and who had in other cases even used rhyme at different times, but he didn't use my limerick. So when I was up there before the 11 judges at the 11th Circuit and the case was going very well, it was clear we were going to win. And the chief judge, Judge Teachin, says, Mr. Lewin, your time is just about up. I said, let me recite a limerick to you. And I recited a limerick. That limerick appears in 5 Federal 3rd, page 1394. 
the judge says, with notable panache, P-A-N-A-C-H-E. That's not a Yiddish phrase, I think. Notable panache, Chabad's counsel offered the following limerick at oral argument to emphasize the point. And here's the limerick in the Federal Reporter. It seems to a young rabbi of Chabad that the Constitution is exceedingly odd to provide all, to protect all speech in a public place on AIDS or abortion or race, but to prohibit anyone from mentioning God. That was the limerick. And as I say, there are not many lawyers whose limericks appear in the Federal Reporter. Now, I said, I was hoping that I would have the time to tell you about all the jurisdictions that have had menorah problems. Because people think today, oh, there's no problem. I can only tell you, Des Moines, Iowa, Vail, Colorado, um, whole series of places, Chabad Center of South Dakota. Uh, every year we get requests. I have to talk to the local lawyers. I have to send uh, letters to them to respond to what the local opponents of the menorah say. Mark Finkelstein, in the case of uh, Des Moines, Iowa, writes to the local Chabad rabbi, I know that you are proud of your Judaism as I am of my Judaism, but I would like to help you recall that the organized Jewish community does not support a Hanukkah candle lighting, which is a religious act on public property. The societal well-being of the Jewish community is linked to the adequate separation of religion and state. That's the views that we keep hearing from the ACLU. We keep hearing it from local reform rabbis, from opponents of Hanukkah menorahs down to this very day. And I, every year I have half a dozen or more calls from Chabad Shluchim who are having difficulties in getting their menorahs put up in their local cities or towns. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.